Hello dear gentle listener. I have a couple of brief announcements before today's really great show. First of all, let me tell you about ALE, A-L-E, Alternative Left Entertainment, which, as the name suggests, is a collaboration of podcasters, writers and streamers who will provide entertainment which is also left-wing, anti-capitalist and anti-fascist. Go and check us out at alternativeleftentertainment.org. There are loads of lovely folk doing some important work in the collective and it's launched in the last couple of months, so do check it out and show us all some love. Everyone tries to do themed shows and this is my show for the theme Capitalism, which was actually meant to be out two months ago. Anyway... Also, as you know, this show is funded by my wonderful Patreon supporters via patreon.com forward slash culture sex relationships. You too can also support the show on Patreon from just £1 a month. This is not a hobby for me, this is work. So if you can afford to support the show, that would be really great. The more patrons I get, the more shows I can make. It's as simple as that. I pay myself to research, record, produce and publish the podcast. I also pay fellow freelance guests a £50 fee for their time and expertise. Patrons also get early access to episodes. For example, this is well, this one's been out for a week already, and extras here and there, extended episodes or readings. They can also get access to our Discord server where they can chat about episodes and with the fans of the show. They also don't get these annoying pleas for your support at the beginning of the show. So that's patreon.com forward slash culture sex relationships. If you're not a Patreon type or you don't want to sign up for Patreon, you could also just chuck me a quid. paypal.me forward slash bish training. B-I-S-H training. You should see my face on on that webpage when you get there. Okay, on with the show. I hope you enjoy it. It's such a good one. Bye. Hello and welcome to Culture Sex Relationships. When we talk about porn, it's invariably about what effects it causes, what it's doing to our sexualities, what is it teaching our kids about sex, and blaming it for hacking into and hijacking our desires. More interesting is to look at porn in culture, just as we might look at media as at other media, such as social media industries and streaming platforms. What kinds of active relationships might we have with it and it on us, on an individual and also on a cultural level? To that end, what is the relationship that porn has with capitalism? Looking as porn has gone from being a frowned upon unproductive activity to a still frowned upon but now productive activity for capital. With the major porn streaming sites being as popular as other media streaming sites, they've managed to turn viewing into labour. They keep viewers attentive but also distracted with the seemingly endless opportunities to view and click elsewhere. The data from the viewers used to form the production of porn, which is also owned by the free streaming sites. In an age where work has become dominant and also valorised, the content itself has also gone from representations of desire to the representation of hard work. Performers are finely tuned athletes paying constant attention to both their appearance but also to ensure that they are fit enough to do such demanding work. Often this hard work is punishing, exploitative and unethical just as with other modes of production. How has ethical or feminist porn responded to this and in what ways are these just valorizing another kind of labor? But also, can anti-capitalist porn providers with an exemplar of labour in post-neoliberal capitalism and also perhaps a gentle reminder of the labours of love that are necessary for the erotic to become? Uh, I'm delighted to be joined by Rebecca Saunders to talk about her book, Bodies of Work, The Labour of Sex in the Digital Age. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Justin. Lovely to be here. Uh, 
sorry about that super long intro everyone but there is so much in this book uh which is i found so interesting and i've learned an absolute ton so um in the uh just in learning more about more from academics about sex relationships and culture this is uh, you're welcome to listen into this dear listener um so just from the get-go just to kind of uh, like to set up the the kind of the broad theme of um porn going from something which is uh, unproductive to productive so it's gone from something which people might buy or create for themselves and then watch or read in their leisure time so that's how I think most people might understand the role of porn and capitalism i.e it's something that we I guess used to buy and then we then in our buy, might buy a book or a magazine or a dvd and then watch in our leisure time but now that's widespread availability of free porn how is that now part of the economy? A lot of people might think, well, because it's free, I'm not taking part in any kind of economy. This is not in some way capitalist, but it is actually deeply capitalist, isn't it? Um, could you explain some, some of that for us? Yeah, so um, the, the two things that I talk about in the first couple of chapters of the book are the idea of your desire and your eyeballs I guess in Mm -hmm. Jonathan Beller talks about our eyeballs um how those things are embedded in the digital attention economy Mm. so that is connected to things like advertising and how how central advertising space is and Mm. and targeted ads and things like that to the whole functioning of of digital capitalism Mm -hmm. um And the other um, main way that it's useful, I think, to think about the relationship between watching porn online and capitalism is through data. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we we were emailing back and forth about the datafication of desire and I call it sexual datafication. Mm. Um, And so that describes the way that your desire and everything you look at and everything you click on Mm. is um generating data about you like i mean i think people are pretty familiar with that it takes place in Mm -hmm. in lots of other um through lots of other digital technologies like your fitbit or any other online browsing you do Mm. um and the kind of pervasiveness of um of google analytics that's kind of gathering information about who you are and what you consume to try and predict other things that you might want to buy so that it can target advertising at you. Um, and yeah, one, one of the things um, that I talk about in the, in the book as well is um, how for massive um, online um, conglomerates like MindGeek that own the, the free porn sites that most people will be familiar with, like Pornhub, mm. that your data is valuable to them as well because they're not just a tube site or a platform that's making money from you through gathering information about you and maybe selling that data on to, a, to another company. They're, they also produce pornography through mm. lots of porn companies that we might not think of as being connected to those free sites. You know, so like Brazzers and Reality Kings and lots of those um, those big um, porn production companies are owned by the same conglomerate. Mm. And so 
Um, we, the pornography we watch generates information about the kinds of trends that are developing. So I talk in the book about like, um, uh, uh, like Marvel movie franchises mm -hmm. and how people might watch those films and then they search for pornography, like, um, uh, you know, porn parodies of those films. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then those porn production companies then make um, parodies that they know will be um, successful. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, kind of quite a, quite a rapid feedback loop and a reciprocal relationship between gathering the data from porn viewers and then um, finessing and creating particular content to fit, mm. uh, yeah, to fit what they've learned about us. And, and also it goes the other way. So um, uh, I talk about Pornhub Insights, which is this, really really interesting um, branch of Pornhub to, to visit because it's where it kind of celebrates and publicizes all of the data that it's gathering mm. um, from its millions of viewers. Um, and you can see in the way that it addresses us as the viewer that they're also kind of encouraging you to think about yourself in those datafied terms and to mm. try and think about you know, so it will ask you kind of what kind of thoughts, what kind of sexual thoughts have you had today? If it, if you've thought about someone who's wearing glasses, you should define yourself as someone who's interested in glasses, porn, nerd porn, you know, and it gives you a bunch of keywords that then you need to start thinking about your desire in those categorized ways. Yeah. Which is, um, which is kind of not how our sexual desires really work, I guess, outside of porn. Do they? They could, we, we kind of categorise those desires and then those categorised desires are then kind of fed back to us. So as you say, if someone's looking at like glasses porn, you might get fed um, a load of other scenes, uh, which uh, might also contain adverts uh, for of other glasses porn. But actually the thing that you might have found hot in the scene might not have been the glasses, but it might have been the way somebody looked at the other person or uh, it might have been another aspect of someone's identity, something else they might have been wearing. So it kind of, so it kind of, um, that kind of datification has that impact on, on our, our desires when we go, when we go to the, um, when we go to the sites, the, the, they kind of serve up this kind of, this desire to us, which kind of feels like it's ours, but actually in some ways is is kind of created for us, I suppose, or categorised for us already. Yes, absolutely. Also, although your glasses are really great, Justin, I did use that example, not because you happen to be wearing glasses, but it was the example <laughs> from the book. Um, yeah, I think it's a good example. I've been writing about this lately from my website for teenagers, and I've been talking about clan porn. Uh, I'm hoping that's not something else. I hope it, it is actually just porn involving clowns. Um, clown porn? I, uh, ha I have never seen that. No, well, they say that that might be one of the things that we haven't seen, but that but rule 34, I guess, dictates that if you can think of it, it exists. So, yeah. But no um, one ever suggests porn to me that I haven't already seen. So thank you. Yeah. It's well, good to know. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, just to kind of, to reinforce your, your point, just, uh, I was also done some, in addition to reading your book, I was reading this really good financial times report on um, 
the kind of monopolies that these companies have. And so you mentioned MindGeek and they and they own many of the most popular platforms. But the, there's another company called WGCZ Holding, which own the other platforms. So if you're not clicking on a MindGeek platform, you're probably clicking on WGCZ. So MindGeek own, I think it's YouPorn, RedTube, uh, Pornhub, and another couple of others. Also, they all have like kind of gay equivalents, don't they? Because they have to be a very heteronormative, which we might talk about in a bit. But then the other ones, like XHamster, XVideo, are owned by this other company who also own production companies. So there's actually this kind of monopoly at play as well. And so these companies who own the most popular porn tube sites are then putting some of their clips from their, uh, their, their porn that you can pay for onto those sites as adverts, as well as all of the other content. Apparently a terabyte of information is uploaded onto these websites a day, which is like half of Netflix. So... This is huge, isn't it? This is like we're, we're, this is not like a small corner of the internet. This is this is big, isn't it? Yes, I can I, I say in the introduction that I feel like, and other people say the same thing. Um, Adam Arvidsson and Matteo Pasquinelli kind of talk about how pornography, rather than it being an example of some of these um, digital cap- capitalist phenomena, are it, it's it's central to it. Hmm. Um, yeah. And yeah, just um, just in relation to what you were what you were saying at the beginning about how when how can free porn be embedded in capitalism when it's free? Mm. Um, yeah, I think you make a you make a really important point there as well that it's it's that the free sites are adverts for those premium sites mm. um, yeah. and that, and they also function yet yeah, to kind of draw you to buy something at some point from one of those companies. Yeah. Whilst also advertising all of the, the other adverts at you about alternatives to porn and, and the kinds of things you could be doing in real life. Again, it's such a, uh, we could really get into that because you do talk about that a lot. The, the, the sense that you're kind of being, um, the, the viewer is kind of being drawn into this kind of um, into this ever unsated desire, which um, ultimately the kind of the 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 uh, I can't remember exactly what you were saying, but it, there is a sense that um, no, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go down that tangent. I'm gonna cut. Wait, that. I I was gonna say I think okay. I know what you were gonna say. Were yeah, you gonna go were you gonna say that? Um, the that uh the way that those sites kind of um tell you to stop wanking and yeah. stop being pathetic and to go and find some real people to have sex with like that's yeah. a very um common <laughs> advert to pop up yeah um which is a kind of interesting you know it's like it's it's sort of simultaneously promising this very fulfilling excessive surfeit of sexual satisfaction at the same time as kind of creating this inadequacy and scarcity to the whole process that kind of keeps you um keeps you searching I guess yeah that's the yeah there is that sense of I got uh, the um I was reading another book about this uh um 
uh, by uh, Jacob Johansson. He was talking about um, the uh, the online misogyny in the manosphere, and he was talking about this uh, Lacanian or Freud Lacanian idea of like the thing, and that porn offers up this kind of this sense of like a kind of a lack in ourselves that there is a thing that we haven't found yet, and the way that I guess porn is constructed, but also like social media like Twitter and stuff as well, you know, the endless excess of this means that you can be kind of constantly clicking and clicking and looking for the real desire that you haven't kind of found yet. So ultimately it's offering dissatisfaction in two ways by, by distracting people from, uh, from what their desires might be and offering these kind of very highly categorized desires that were that you're like supposed to click on whilst also advertising at you that you're in some way inadequate for doing it <laughs> uh, that this isn't real or not real sex uh yeah so i've that's a polemic point but you know uh, i can yeah uh i've been thinking about this um yeah sorry i just realized i was nodding enthusiastically but nodding doesn't really <laughs> translate on a podcast <laughs> Oh, um, well, you know, that's fine. I'll just, I'll say Rebecca is nodding. Uh, <laughs> that's not weird at all. No, 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 no I'm not. Don't worry. I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, monitoring and disciplining everything that you're, that you're doing and saying. So in that, say, in that sense, so when we're talking about, when we're looking at something, if we're being advertised at and, um, and monitored in that way, it's kind of part of the, what you term the attention economy, isn't it? And that's not just something that's happened with porn, but it's just that whenever we're looking at a screen, I think you, uh, I can't remember who, who it is you quote from, uh, who I think you might have mentioned the name before actually, but to look is to labour um, now, right? Um, but also you kind of argue, you then move on then to argue that porn itself has become a representation of hard work um, and that perhaps somehow in the society we're living in, like, let's say, late stage uh, capitalism or neoliberal capitalism or post-Fordist or post-post-Fordist capitalism, I guess. <laughs> we're in platform capitalism now, I guess. Who knows? Um, that we've somehow eroticized labor in and of itself. So could you tell us, you have some really important, interesting t- things to say about some of the shifts and trends around that. For example, ha- uh, about the actual amount of sex in porn and how that's gone up over the years. Since, uh, what we might term like the, in inverted commas, the like golden age of porn or uh, the 1970s kind of porn. Yeah, I have some, some uh, close analysis and comparison between a digital playground film made in the last five years and uh some of yeah some of those classics like behind the green door and Mm. the actual how the representations of sex show a really significant transition from the pornographic film genre as a genre that seeks to represent sexual pleasure Mm. um to a film genre that seeks to represent bodily labor um, and there's there's a few documentaries like Hot Girls Wanted, Nine to Five Days in Porn, and lots of interviews with with um, with porn stars on YouTube that mm. I um, that I talk about in the book. Where they so some of those performers have spanned the last thirty ish years mm-hmm. of the porn industry and talk about how different the actual 
nature of the work is, the kind of things that you're expected to do, the hours that you work, you know, maybe maybe working from seven in the morning until 3 a.m. the following day. Mm. Um, and the, um, so Sasha Gray, who is retired from the porn industry now, but um, she uses the term sexual athletes mm. to describe how she conceptualized being a female porn star. And that term has become really common for for um, more contemporary porn performers to articulate how they see their work um that yeah you were you were just talking about this the the really significant amount of bodily training hmm. that you need to do to be able to do that job yeah. um and i was um i was interested in pornography that um, is set in gyms and ballet studios and that really explicitly represents the most exciting sex, the most uh, kind of successful sex um, as being sex that is extremely um, visibly labor intensive. Mm. Um, And that's reflected in, um, the idea of the kind of pornographic hard body, if you like, mm-hmm. you know, that it's really rigid and even and, and muscular mm. and toned um, and even kind of signs of, of tra- tra- traditional and in inverted commas pornographic excess, like, mm. um, like breasts or, you know, those, um, those ideas of a sexual body that is overflowing its productive requirements that mm. that we see in pornography stretching about 500 years that even those signs of sexual excess have become highly disciplined like through breast implants for example mm-hmm. um and yeah i guess that um that foregrounded labor intensity is used as as the sign of sexual excess. Right. It's how it's how pornography shows that something um, something that is the most um, exciting and intense is happening because mm-hmm. it's faster and it shows greater. So I think I I call like talk about gestural rationality mm-hmm. and behavioral rationality uh, Sarah Shashek talks about that in her book pornography and seriality as well the idea that um like good sex as it's represented in pornography is sex that is incredibly um visibly disciplined and standardized and um performers talk about how specific their performances need to be like you will hold this exact position for this number of minutes, then you will move to this position, then this position. Um, there's no um, spontaneity or kind of individuality. Yeah. It's a kind of standardized temporality of sex, if you like, which I, I argue is very connected to the viewer. So that the way that we as viewers consume pornography 
and are and are pushed to consume it very quickly mm. or to consume it in these kind of um efficient bursts of mm-hmm. um bursts is probably like quite a grotesque <laughs> term to use but i mean um so we we were we were talking before the podcast started about the how porn consumption is fitted into the working day or mm. and, and that the whole idea of the working day has has obviously kind of expanded and is excessive itself yeah. so one of the things i touch on is how um as viewers who are whose work is expanding um and i, I talk about uh, jonathan crary's book 24 7 late capitalism and the ends of sleep so the idea that we're kind of working all the time never yeah. sleep and in that context what productive role does porn consumption co- come to have for for us as as digital workers in front of our laptops all day long and so if as viewers porn consumption becomes efficient fitted into maybe even as a as a kind of um as a motivation or whatever into this extended working day, how do those, um, those ideas of speed and efficiency then, and categorization, Mm. um, demand a new type of performance from porn performers. So that link between the, the immaterial forms of productivity that porn viewers are engaged in and how that's connected to the material labor that porn performers have to do. Yeah, that's so interesting. And that it and that that point that it has kind of gone from, I guess, I think one of the one of the things that you in your close reading of, of um of kind of like a older or pre-internet porn is that there there was there were kind of fewer sex scenes in those films, but also there was actually kind of there was acting. There were there were kind of the, and also there were affects going on. So there's a lot more kind of okay, seeing what desire looks like, seeing seeing how um, being able to kind of have the time almost to kind of see yourself in a storyline or to witness a storyline and to kind of to have that time. And to have that kind of relationship to uh, like an, an auteur's work, you know, despite what you might think about a lot of porn, a lot of it was, you know, kind of auteur. People were trying to make sexy films rather than specific sex scenes. And that's completely changed because this idea that that, that the viewer is wanting certain set of acts to last for a certain degree of time in a certain order and they can rely on that happening they might have to pay for that in order to get that in order to get some of the some of the bursts of activity they might have to specifically pay for those um and that and that might be something that the that the, the the porn websites are trying to get people to do but that is the kind of the expected thing and yeah and so that shifted exactly what it is that we're, we're looking at you also kind of talk about like the speed of this as well don't you and and the and and so you know that the the fucking that we see is kind of hard and fast fucking and very sweaty and very um, extremely athletic in that way and that's been that's a real shift but that is people working they are actually working very hard but they are also representing very hard work too 
Yes, I think as well, um, uh, porn performers often say um, that, so they have a really grueling exercise regimen to, to um, make sure their bodies can perform the way they, yeah, at, at the requisite speed. Um, and they often say, I don't work out on my, on my porn uh, producing days because that is my workout. So yeah. this kind of um, like, yeah, like I was saying, like often pornography, it, it's not a coincidence that pornography becomes more and more interested in representing sex in kind of fitness, um, yeah. um, sort of mise-en-scenes, and then um, that the sex itself has become conceptualized as a type of bodily work. Yeah, it's super interesting. Um, I mean, it's all super interesting, um, but kind of related to this to this as well. And if I've not already given, um, dear listener, if I've not already given you um, a content note, I might have might have to give you a content note now, or later me might come in and jump in with a content note here because we're going to talk about a couple of the chapters which are, um, I guess I don't know quite how to word this, but certainly there's uh, uh, it was porn featuring um, violent sexual acts. Hi, dear listener, future me here. Yeah, if you want to skip this bit about uh, violent, misogynist porn, then do skip ahead to around 40 minutes in. We'll chat about this for around 13 minutes. Um, or we might say very hardcore pornography, so uh, or kind of in inverted commas extreme. I kind of don't want to make judgments around these terms, but we also are trying to get everyone to understand what we're talking about. Setting aside the kind of the allegations of non-consensual practices in porn, porn companies have had their own Me Too movement going for quite some time, and there are kind of known um, uh, instances where certainly there have been uh, rapes and sexual assaults happening both on camera and off camera, um, and companies not taking that seriously. But just the, the book isn't about that necessarily, so we're going to set that to one side. But even if we were to assume that these scenes uh, of these kind of extreme scenes were consensually made. Their representation tells us something really powerful about how we see the exploitation of labour and some of the kind of the assumptions that we have, I think, about labour too, and showing how real and hard and punishing it can be. Punishing it can be. And they're kind of in, in some of these companies took great steps to show how like hard this was as a way of really valorizing how that that this was kind of both authentic but also, you know, very difficult. Can you, can you tell us a bit more about what you found in some of those scenes? Yes. So um, I distinguish between a general trend of increased explicitness of labour and in your mainstream heteronormative pornography that you would find on, a, on any of the porn sites that we've been mentioning. And then I isolate this this particular, like you say, kind of extreme, I would could I would call it misogynistically mm -hmm. violent <laughs> pornography. Yeah. Um, I included that chapter um, because it it's vital to address those those misogynistic um, aspects of the industry. Um, but also because it really bothered me when I was looking at those sites that they defined themselves as subversive mm. and that that was the um the basis of 
of how those companies advertise themselves and the the sort of thrall of of those websites and how users would um, on on kind of blogs and bulletin boards how they would talk about why they use those sites. Um, it was this idea that it was um, really socially unacceptable and subversive and excessive. Hmm. So kind of I, I was trying to to think about how ideas of pornographic excess and and how pornography can really usefully reject um, conservative, reductive um, ideas of acceptable sex. How can that? How has that useful idea of pornographic success been? Um, been taken up by these mm. companies and used to to yeah define their companies as as subversive anyway um so yeah so those um those misogynistic violent sites they really emphasize porn as a type of work mm. so they'll often have um lengthy descriptions of the the socio-economic context in mm. which that particular female performer came to make that film um emphasizing uh things like um sexual abuse or um poverty and 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 yet yeah, foregrounding the fact that those women are making the films because they have no other option right so it's a really um rendering explicit of the exploitative labor mm. involved in the industry. Um, and that marks an important shift from how pornography, how pornographic film offered those, those fundamental um, ideas of truth and, and realness that you were talking about. So, mm. Um, I mention in that chapter um, Linda Williams's fantastic book Hardcore, um, the first book to kind of establish the importance of analysing pornographic film as a film genre. Mm. And one of the, the central um, points that she makes is that pornographic film was interested in giving unmediated truth, particularly the truth of the female body and that that the way it gave that truth was through what she calls out of control the out of control frenzy of the visible which would be orgasm mm -hmm. like i can i know that what i'm seeing is true right. and that's what hardcore pornography gives me because it can't be faked you know that the, whatever those like phys physical paroxysms can't be faked right um and so uh violent pornography like that we're talking about, it seeks that same indexicality, that same promise of the real. But instead of that real being the real of orgasm, it's the real of capitalist violence. Um, and so... I guess it, on the one hand, it might kind of sound on the on the one hand that they might be saying, look, we're subverting the rest of the porn industry by kind of like telling it as it is. But actually what they're doing is they're doing the capitalist violence. They're not critiquing it. They're just they're showing it. 
Yeah, I mean, you could say that it's it's capitalistically subversive in the sense that I so I talk about it in terms of it cracking open the the fetish of the commodity mm-hmm. and showing the actual production, the awful exploitative reality. Um, and I mean, so it's it's not sexually subversive um, because it's obviously highly um, highly conservative. Um, and I and I tease out in that chapter how those those kind of two types of subversion, sexual subversion and capitalist subversion are used by those sites and mm. um, and try to unpick that. Um, and um, yeah, it's also, I, I think about it in terms of an extension of um, pornographic developments between the golden age of porn that we were talking about and now. Um, so things like Gonzo and mm-hmm. uh, Max Hardcore and John Stagliano mm-hmm. and uh, so Helen Hester has written um, about how things like um, so bodily signs that can't be denied like spit are um, offer the viewer that promise of the real right um, and so these really violent types of pornography, they have those things, you know, so they'll, they'll have scenes like, um, like a woman being sick, mm-hmm. which, which cannot be, um, cannot be faked if you yeah. like. And the, the physicality of things like vomit or blood or spit are these really potent cinematic signs of truth. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and I, I think that this type of extreme pornography works in conjunction with really efficient, the really efficient, disciplined, clean type of pornography that we were talking about before. So if you have a, a kind of mainstream pornographic culture that is where bodies are completely clean, incredibly disciplined, um, what you what you see when you choose a particular film based on particular keywords is very predictable. Right. And I talk in the book about things like how if you select anal or threesome or whatever, um, the viewer is expecting a certain kind of very programmatic um, series of things that they will see. And so this um, particular corner of the mainstream tries to offer something um different mm. that i conceptualize as a kind of breaking of the disciplined body it's like looking and and reveling in taking the working body the functioning working body and destroying it mm. um I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think also you were kind of like um, drawing parallels between, you know, you know how this how this operates in capital capitalism too. That um, you know that this exploitation does go as far as essentially, um, in some ways, kind of destroying labour, um, but also that kind of just 
could, uh, I think it might be good to kind of insert here that some of this, um, I mean, it also sounds, you know, having uh, read uh, the uh, book by Jac- uh, Jacob Jacobson, which, uh, dear listeners, I did a podcast about this last week, um, it reading, having read that since I read your book, it also kind of reads as a kind of uh, a an alt-right or a fascist kind of view of women too, that the, the misogyny of... Um, both needing the object of the other to define uh, the masculinity against, uh, whilst seeking to keep it alive, whilst also seeking to destroy it. So I think that there's a lot of kind of very uncomfortable um, uh, kind of mirrors of that in what I was reading in in your chapter about it. But also, go on. Sorry, I was just going to say, yeah, I think that's a problem. I mean, there's there's two problems connected to that. One is the use of irony um, in the in those um, those websites so that it's simultaneously incredibly violent and misogynistic and very upsetting to watch mm. and certainly looks like you're just watching somebody be h- horrifically abused mm. and this and those sites capitalize on that then on the other hand they kind of use ideas of performativity and the fact that it is a production and maybe it's not real so maybe it's okay as a way of um of making that content and and related to that i think a huge problem is the responsibility of of the platforms that we've been talking about because they have disclaimers saying that no content can be uploaded that is you know where anyone is seen being abused or anything mm-hmm. that's non-consensual and yet you can find all of that content on 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 all of those platforms so it connects to that broader problem of the polit- the politics of those platforms that they kind of because they define themselves as sort of tube sites where they're not responsible for what people upload they don't have to um yeah take yeah. responsibility for that and again, this FT piece that I'll put in the show notes kind of talks about this, that they're, they're quite secretive about how, for example, how many moderators they have. Uh, and they, um, it's uh, one person alleges that they have, like they were told that they just have the Pornhub or one of, one of the one of the tube sites that only has like a couple of dozen moderators, whereas YouTube might have 10,000 moderators. Even YouTube having 10,000 moderators doesn't seem like enough to me. And so there is an awful lot of, uh, user uploaded uh, pornography which is either illegal or abusive or in some way flouting the terms and conditions of their own websites but they don't check often enough but also um, scenes from other porn companies who haven't consented to have their material put up there um, including some uh, some alternative porn companies so um, which uh, we'll kind of come on to now so in response to the to what we've just been talking about with well, also just to kind of to further make the point, I guess, is that you know the the way that the um, that that these sites work is to serve up a, a kind of uh, a diet of a particular kind of porn that they think that the uh, the use the viewer is going to be interested in, and and you talk about in the book how that ends up being incredibly heteronormative and serving up uh, extremely um, normative scripts around gender and even. Uh, what is sex you know sexual scripts um so they kind of serve that up they also serve it up with um 
uh, a lot of uh, discrimination and, and uh, for example, racism and ableism and classism and stuff too. Um, in addition to that, so so in response to that and some of the so the the kind of the this hard work, the the labour of porn and and some of the violence in porn, some alternative porn companies uh, have sought to make a more kind of ethical kind of brand of, of pornography, which is like avowedly feminist, with more representations of agency, more visually more visual consent practices, so more visual examples of consent happening. Whilst they might have some aesthetic differences, uh, they also end up sometimes telling some of the same stories about labour too as well, don't they? Uh, I was really, I found this bit particularly uh, interesting um, because I kind of thought that it was going to, it kind of challenged my thinking about um, about the the response of these kinds of, uh, what was kind of known as like alternative porn or ethical porn or feminist porn, but um, they... They still they tell a, a different story about labour, but also one which is actually quite capitalist too, don't they? Yes, I um, the the rhetoric around all of those disparate alternative pornographies that have lots of different labels is very connected to the um, problematic labour politics of the creative industries mm -hmm. and the types of of immaterial and post-Fordist labor that we were talking about at the beginning. Mm -hmm. So the idea of precarity, having zero hours contracts, um, never having, not having a clearly delineated distinction between your labor and your non-labor time, mm -hmm. but just a kind of diffuse sense that you should always be working. Um, and that the way that you get people to work in that way is through the embedding of their individuality and their creativity and their passion into their work. That what, you know, Brooke Aaron Duffy's Do What You Love um, uh, Maxim. Mm -hmm. And um, it's really interesting to, to, to read and, and watch videos of, um, of, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't want to call them alternative porn performers because that creates a misleading sense that those performers only work in the alt porn yeah. industry when the reality of their work is that they have to do many different jobs and they have to do, um, like Madison Young says, um, she's a famous um, queer performer, I had to do a lot of anal to make enough money for my feminist and queer art gallery that I right. set up. And all of these performers are you know, they're not siloed off in a special ethical part, uh, you know, area. They're having to work for lots of different companies um, and, and do other types of um, sex work and other, other types of non-sex work as well. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a th something that's really important that we need to think critically about individual alternative porn companies and question what their what their labor politics are. I mean, mm. how much money do they pay their performers, mm -hmm. and and um, how ethical are their are their labor practices as as kind of um, key starting questions, but also to interrogate this broader idea that. Um, it's not work 
because it involves sexual pleasure. Right. Um, and a lot of these um, companies emphasize the fact that people will um, have sex with their partner mm-hmm. in in a, in a film or have sex with their friends um, and that, and they also, performers often say, and are probably encouraged to say, like, oh, the, what you're watching is just the sex that I would have been having anyway. Right. And so, you know, almost as if the, the creation of that film, filmic commodity is incidental to, or, to their life. Um, and that is part of the same problem of the real that we that we see in relation to um, to violent pornography, the idea that we can access the the truth of that performer's sexual experience, mm. and that the film kind of opens transparently and unproblematically onto the the fullness of what the what their experience was, and that really it's not a production. There is no production process. It's just right. a like a yeah, an unproblematic recording of their pleasure. And connected to that is the, is the, um, how um, non-heteronormative sexualities are, um, are used as a way of promising that indexicality. So um, because alternative pornography, like you were saying, it emphasizes, um, it's feminist credentials or that it has queer performers or it has real lesbian performers rather than kind of the fake lesbian performers of mainstream porn. Um, that because it, because it has those um, performers with those sexual identities in the films, that the film you're seeing is inherently more true and inherently more ethical. Um, and I talk as well about, um, what what you mentioned uh, just a minute ago about how alternative pornography aesthetically looks different. You know, mm. it's slower. It's it doesn't fetishize visi- like genital visibility in the same way and things like that. Um, but the problem with that is that aesthetics and ethics become synonymous. Mm. So that if a pornographic film looks a certain way like, you know, sunlight streaming through a window, performers are smiling and talking, um, the sex is represented in a slow, spontaneous way, not in the kind of standardized, incredibly rapid ways that we were talking about before. Mm. Then there's an assumption that the production process must have been ethical and it, and it must have involved um, real pleasure and it's not really work for those performers. That's right, and there's there's other kinds of work too, isn't there? So it might be that it might that they might not have to be so athletic, although certainly they still have to um, to look the part. They still have to look, yeah, like as you were saying, because a lot of people who who work at for alternative porn companies are also working for mainstream porn companies too. There are also a set of beauty standards within a lot of alternative porn companies that they don't necessarily always. Um, 
subvert or or or, or, or uh, tell a different story about. But also they're having to do a kind of a lot of affective labour as well, aren't they? They're having to show a greater deal of what we would call their sexual subjectivity, but on camera, which is a different kind of work and arguably you know, harder work in, in many ways that to have to kind of to uh, there's a kind of a trend and uh, in uh, a kind of a almost a meme in alternative porn that there is the interview before and the interview after um, as if that is not work that is very much part of work and it's not spaces where people actually might feel that they could have you know it's not as if they have like a mediator there or uh, an intermediary who might feed back to the director no I didn't like this wasn't good or I didn't agree to this or I wish we could have stopped at this point you know though there, there is like a, 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 a kind of a staged realness in those kinds of conversations and those kinds of um, personalities that we see as well, don't they? They're not really peer, peering behind the curtain, it's peering behind another curtain that we have to peer around. Rebecca is nodding. <laughs> yes, I quote, um, I quote Stoya, the really fantastic uh, performer and director, um, uh, and she says exactly that of like, not only do I have to make the film, but then I have to reassure you that I had an orgasm, then you, and then I have to t- keep telling you over and over again. And yeah, um, that those, those requirements of alternative pornography, like real pleasure, authentic, marginalized sexuality, mm-hmm. those just become other components of your work that you have to, prove that you are an authentic um, trans performer or or prove that you are an authentic gay woman. Um, And exactly as you say, that's just a, um, in many ways, like a a deeper uh, type of labor that's required of you. Which is also just being disavowed, isn't it? So that's the that's the that's the thing I found just really interesting. It is that it's as if, uh, you've already said this, but as if it's as if to say there's no labour here. You just happen to be giving us money for us. This is kind of like a treat. We get money for doing the thing we'd have been enjoying doing, enjoying doing anyway. But that kind of thing is really um, dangerous, uh, and it's I'm sure it's the kind of thing that David Graeber was talking about in Bullshit Jobs when he was referring to people like me who do something which is you know, socially valuable or kind of worthwhile. And people think that part of my wages are that because I'm doing something worthwhile that I must enjoy it and therefore I don't deserve paying. So this kind of thing kind of happens with porn, with that kind of porn too. Well, there might be the danger of that kind of happening or the danger that that is just the story we're being told. And so, yeah, if it has this kind of aesthetic look, it has these certain performers doing certain things, we might then assume, okay, well, I feel really good about giving them money because this is in some way anti-capitalist um yes and also because those performers are um really politically motivated and they see themselves very understandably as having a responsibility to try and represent right other types of non-heteronormative sexuality which is laudable yep. but it makes them it makes them vulnerable to um to some of those forms of capitalist exploitation that we're talking about, because for example, they might think, well, I don't want, you know, we're doing this as a community project to make this documentary or to make this porn film. So I won't, I won't get paid. And, and I also won't emphasize that. And I'll speak really positively about the work because they're also battling against 
the kind of anti-porn, um, sure. you know, really significant uh, anti-porn uh, politics and society that they're up against. So it's it's understandable that they don't, you know, that they they want to talk positively about their job mm-hmm. and try to fight against some of the conservative, unhelpful ideas about sex work. But it also means that it, yeah, it kind of feeds into this broader um, disavowal of yeah. labor if it involves any type of creativity or um, individuality. Yeah. I guess we're kind of talking about the uh, the kind of famous axis of politics, aren't we? So the uh, from top to bottom is authoritarian to liberal, and then there's left to right. So in many ways, you know, with these alternative porn companies, we might be talking about a slightly to the left of the middle line, but the but it's very very liberal. But what I guess we're about to talk about is okay, how can we take this okay, very liberal, laudable, we like that, and shift it over more towards the left because there can be no ethical consumption under capitalism. How can we do things which might be anti-capitalist? I think also just before I maybe I should have. We should have kind of defined ourselves a bit about <laughs> capitalism at the beginning, but just because before we come to the last bit, which is hopeful, dear listener. So, I'd like to leave everyone with a bit of hope, which is nice. So, capitalism is different to commerce, isn't it? So, I think a lot of people, when they have quite, uh, let's say, a rudimentary understanding of capitalism, might think, well, okay, well, under, un, so under like communism or socialism there wouldn't be any kind of payment for services or any payment for products or anything like that, which is not necessarily true. Capitalism is the, it's the production of, it's the creation of profit for its own good, the endless creation of profit for its own good. Interestingly, these porn companies don't make huge amounts of profits because they're, they have a lot of debts, I think, because they had to financialize um, their purchase of all the other, uh, of the porn companies. Uh, and, um, that, that financing of that debt didn't come cheap because porn companies are not viewed as uh, necessarily as being like legitimate companies for uh, venture capitalists or other investment organizations to invest in anyway. But it is possible to create a kind of, um, to create porn companies offering services, which are actually doing something which you talk about in your book as being interventionist pornography. So rather than pretending that there isn't any labor in the production of porn, it's to reimagine how that labor could be put to use in anti-capitalism or post-capitalism or outside of capitalism, kind of peering in. Um, could you kind of give us a brief overview of, of perhaps some of the people doing this and, um, and kind of what it, what it looks like and, uh, and what you found when you went in your kind of analysis of these Yes. Um, so I um, I define interventionist pornography as opposed to alternative pornography or indie pornography or whatever as pornography that foregrounds labor as the basis of its porn politics. What mm-hmm. uh, Tim Stuttgen's term, not mine. Um, so rather than the so a, a problem that I talk about in the book is that um, having defining ethical pornography on the basis of aesthetics or on the basis of a particular sexual identity of the performer 
um, reduces the politics of porn to the politics of representation. It, it becomes vulnerable to this criticism of the, the question of how, how can you subvert pornography using pornography uh, because right. it's all the same image form. So it's all kind of part of the same sort of commodified image problem. Mm. Um, and um, interventionist pornography is pornography that does not disavow the labor of porn production. It foregrounds it and emphasizes it in various ways. And it also foregrounds and attempts to um, fight against some of those broader forms of capitalist exploitation that we've been talking about, like precarity mm -hmm. and capitalist hierarchy within a specific company. Um, so, yeah, I, I talk about a few examples. I talk about Stoyer's mm -hmm. um, company and um, Shine Louise Houston's Pink and White Productions and Zara Stardust, who... Um, um, who's an activist and academic and uh, amazing porn star. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, so. Just to, just, just to go back to the, just the, one of the interesting things to pull out of the aesthetics of this as well is that what, one thing I found um, uh, kind of fun actually, and kind of made me, made me chuckle but also think quite seriously about it is that they they devalues the the aesthetics of this in, in in some of the films so you talk about one film where the film is basically people are sitting around chatting about whether they're gonna like what they're gonna do and they may or may not have sex and then they set the camera down and they go off to a different part of the room and you can hear some sex happening but you can't see anything <laughs> and so I think it's quite interesting because one it's like okay well fuck you porn we are so this is it's, it's demonstrating a very different kind of thing and demonstrating we don't valorize these kinds of um even even bodies but it's also kind of bringing back something about that we're kind of talking about that's been lost from like the golden age of porn which is to talk about the spaces in between and that the um so I imagine, I've not seen that film, but I imagine that it might still be quite a sexy film to watch because you're looking at the room and they have a relationship. They, they, that room is very much a part of the, the sex that they are having, right? And so even to kind of focus on the kind of, on the space in which the sex is happening without, without focusing on the sex is still in some way sexy because having sex is in, involves beds and sheets and rooms and music and privacy potentially and, and things like that so I thought that was quite um brag Justin you've got so you've got so many great um things going on there bed sheets lights music yeah I mean yeah I'm just thinking about me uh but yeah, it could be <laughs> you don't have to do it on a bed everyone you can you know could be floor sofa a pallet uh <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, I was gonna take the piss out of how limited those uh, possibilities were, but palette really uh, veered off in an interesting direction. Um, um, yes, I think it's re it's been so interesting for me to learn about um, this other world of um, pornography that you pay for. That's um, yeah, that's made by these 
uh, these performers and directors that we've been talking about because it's such a different way of watching pornography. I mean, it's like the difference between watching um, a Marvel movie and a Herzog movie or something right. like they are, they are both films, but they are not, it's not meaningful to say like, well, you know, it's all, it's all bad because it's pornography or something. They're, they're just doing a completely different thing, even though they're using the filmic medium. Sure. Um, but yeah, it's very, so the, the example that you're talking about is a um, Stoyer's film, London. And yeah, it's, it's, so one of those things that I drew out to define interventionist pornography is exactly what you were saying of this idea of how do we undermine the image form using the image form? How do we devalorize it and de-fetishize it? So rather than where alternative pornography says, we will give you all of those pornographic things like reality, authenticity, and we'll show you the truth, but the truth will be the truth of this person's queer identity or the truth of their real orgasm. Um, instead, interventionist pornography says, you can't get that from pornography. Mm. We won't offer you authentic um, queer people because the whole idea of queerness is that those kind of ideas are, are um, yeah, are deconstructed. Yeah. And so it's, it's a very different type of um, viewing experience. So I talk about um, Shine Louise Houston's Crash Pad series and how she'll show two people having sex. And um, Giovanna Mena talks about, uh, I can't remember the term, identificative inclusive or something, mm -hmm. but the idea that pornography works to bring the viewer in and say, you're, you're invisible, don't worry about you, yourself, you're, you're kind of being welcomed in to this person's, to these people's sexual interaction, and you're kind of there with them. Yeah. And instead, Shine Louise Houston constantly draws attention to the viewer and makes you feel very uncomfortable by like, she, so you see her editing the film in uh, and kind of, you know, she emphasizes the sort of creepy, voyeuristic, solitary, lonely aspect of watching pornography. Um, and that, yeah, and, in, and really deconstructs the idea that any pornography could or should offer the viewer the chance to access the kind of the wholeness yeah. of the performer's experience there of their performance. Um, yeah. And that it ultimately it is that people are in, in porn are, are playing roles. The, and that, that is the thing, which is again, to circle back to the, the so-called golden ages that, you know, it went from, porn performances acting and taking on a role where there are, you know, there was dialogue. Again, people always take the piss out of dialogue in, in porn films, but there was an attempt to construct uh, a, a, a desire that we could watch as an audience, uh, that we could take part in as an audience maybe, but that there wasn't this thing about having to, yeah, that, that these people are having to either through their actual physical labour uh, demonstrating what their bodies can do, but also demonstrating their, in some way, their affects. They're not showing that realness, and we're not entitled to that. 
like we shouldn't be entitled to that we should we could be paying for to see something sexy or see something interesting but we shouldn't be feel entitled to be paying for yeah that somebody's real soul real person real personhood subjectivity yeah i think that and um that's what's very different about interventionist pornography is it doesn't try to make its performers or their sexual interaction and their sex work um, soluble into the visible. Yeah. It, there is a visual component to it, which we buy and consume, but it's always showing that there's a production process that the performer's behavior was shaped and warped in these various ways because they were making the film. Mm -hmm. um, they were, they had to do that because you were buying the film, you know, they right. might have wanted to do something and they had to do something else because you, you as the consumer sort of ruined <laughs> what, sure. what they would have wanted to do. And, and also that there are things that are taking place between those performers that can't be represented or experienced by the viewer. And, it, and, that the viewers kind of kept out and mm. mocked, um, which I think is, yeah, a really, um, is really helpful. And, and in relation to the, to the labor politics mm. uh, thing, these companies will, um, so Shine Louise Houston offers live streams of the film, of a particular film being made, um, she puts um, the the contracts that porn performers uh, sign on the website, mm -hmm. so that you can see the kind of the the, the contractual work, very work based um, foundation of that pornography. You know that it's not just like a party that happens to be recorded. Right. It's these people's jobs, and that there's a load of rules that they need to adhere to, and um, and it publicizes how much they get paid and um and it links um the the labor politics of porn production to other other labor rights and other human rights like um so uh her company raises money for um for immigrants and uh prison you know um like incarcerated people in North America, mm -hmm. Native American, Indian communities, you know, so really embedding porn politics and a politics of the erotic, if you like, in broader um, human rights connected to capitalist exploitation. And the, just there's one final thing that I just want to bring out, which uh, it was at the very end of the book, which is the, which is to look at the, to look at these labor practices uh, and to, by by making our labor kind of upfront um, in porn, we can actually see how this might work in capitalism generally or post-capitalism or giving us a view of what's an alternative to capitalism where everyone is really clear about what labor is going on. But it is also, you make a really lovely point where it is actually about a labor of love. Like it's the, if we think about the labors that we do in, um, in our perhaps, non-capitalist or anti-capitalist sex lives or relationship lives or intimate lives that we have with people that putting that labor up front is really important there as well and that exchange of labor and how we create 
environments where well, nice things can happen with each other as well is really important to reflect on. Yes, I think um, as as we were we were talking about earlier, it's incredibly important not to separate politics and um, and sex. And uh, so I, w- I was thinking about Franco Berardi. You know, he talks about the eroticism of anti-capitalism. Mm. Like, what is the connection between? The erotic and a rejection of capitalism, and I think that these types of pornography are the the beacon of how we might start to think about the the materiality of um, of capitalist exploitation, and that we are bodies, and we need to think about the the reality of labor, and um, pornography is a really um, vital way of emphasizing the, our labor status because of its own, um, you know, troubled history with labor politics. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, in relation to, to what you were saying about labors of love, I think that's the other really helpful thing that we can take from interventionist pornography is the idea that just like images can't be reduced to exploitation you know an image can mean many things our labor is more must be able to transcend capitalist exploitation like our our efforts and skills and our ability to make ourselves a means to an end that we choose an um unalienated labor or not to sound too utopian about it but like the capacity to build community and connections and sociality by by our efforts and our time mm-hmm. our labor time that those um those things are really showcased in interventionist pornography because it's simultaneously labor emotional labor and material labor bodily labor and it's labor that is creating community and um yeah, so I, I talk about it's it's kind of representation of a humane labor, labor that has a use value that transcends capitalist exchange value. And that was uh, such a hopeful place to leave the book on, the possibilities for um, looking to pornography as, as a way of uh, finding alternatives to anti-capitalism. It was so great. But what a fascinating book and thank you so much for coming on the show uh rebecca is there anything that you'd like to plug or um let us know about or if you do you want are you a social media person do you want people to find you or would you rather people just left you alone entirely (laughs) um that's fine they can find me um (laughs) i yeah obviously buy the book it's Mm -hmm. i'm glad you liked it um and i have a couple of special issues coming out that are on this topic of sexual datification, one in the Journal of Porn Studies and one in the Journal of Sexualities. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. I'll put those in the show notes. And um, Rebecca, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for inviting me, Justin. It was lovely. It's all right. <laughs>